let me uh, thank everybody for uh, coming today. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm Gene Scalia, the uh, uh, chair of the Federal Society's uh, Labor and Employment Practice Group, and uh, appreciate you uh, coming for today's program and want to um, thank uh, the three distinguished panelists that we have uh, for making the time to come and provide uh, the perspective that really only they can provide on uh, labor and employment issues uh, in town right now. Um, some people have suggested that uh, labor and employment issues today aren't receiving the same um, high-level attention uh, in government that they did during the, uh, during the past presidential administration. I um, mean, it's true that in the last administration, the president himself actually personally insisted that a, a sexual harassment case be brought all the way to the United States Supreme Court, um, in, which, in which he was a defendant. Um, nonetheless, labor and employment law remains an important issue in our current legal and political debate today as well. Um, one of the most discussed Supreme Court decisions uh, from this just-completed term was the Ledbetter decision, which concerned the application of Title VII's statute of limitations to pay discrimination claims. Uh, legislation to overrule uh, that decision has already been introduced in Congress. Uh, the most, uh, uh, I think probably the single most discussed or the pair of most discussed uh, decisions this uh, completed term were the uh, high school diversity cases out of Seattle, and I think it was Louisville, um, which, although not directly involving employment, obviously involved issues of discrimination that are very important to those of us who practice labor and employment law. Um, and just last month, there was uh, a debate in Congress, um, votes, and ultimately a uh, filibuster over the uh, employee, uh, so-called Employee Free Choice Act, which would have enabled unions to organize workplaces through uh, what's called a card check, uh, card authorizations uh, for unionization, rather than through secret ballot election. Passed the House, um, successfully filibustered in the Senate. Um, the, the list of important issues that are uh, attracting our attention and those of the media uh, goes on. Um, there are no three people in Washington uh, better positioned to discuss the top uh, legal and, and policy issues in the field of labor and employment right now than our three speakers today. Um, uh, let me introduce them, uh, them all now in, in the order in which they'll be addressing you. Um, Ronald Meisberg is the general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board, a position he's held since January of 2006. Prior to that, in 2004, he served as a member of the National Labor Relations Board, which makes him uh, only one of four people in the history of the Labor Board to have served both as a member and also as general counsel. Uh, prior to going over to the NLRB, he spent uh, a number of years practicing uh, labor law at the firm of Ogletree, Ogletree and Deacons here in town, and he spent six years in the office of the solicitor at the U.S. Department of Labor, um, I guess at a place that all, all four of us have served at one uh, time or another. Mr. Meisberg is a, a fellow in the College of Labor and Employment Lawyers. Um, Ronald Cooper uh, was sworn in in uh, August of 2006 to serve a four-year term as general counsel of the EEOC. Uh, prior to that, he was a, a partner here in town at Steptoe & Johnson, where he practiced uh, labor and employment law and employment litigation particularly for, if I have it right, 34 years. Um, he also is a fellow in the College of Labor and Employment Lawyers and has held a number of leadership positions in the American uh, Bar Association's labor and employment section. Uh, he served in the solicitor's office in the Department of Labor uh, from 1970 to 1972, which I think would have been the Silberman years in part and the and to those of you familiar with Bill Kilberg, uh, Bill was there as well. Um, prior to that, he uh, uh, had a clerkship on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Finally, uh, Jonathan Snare is currently acting solicitor uh, at the U.S. Department of Labor, a uh, position that he uh, took up in January of 2007. 
uh, as solicitor, as I think most of you know, he has uh, responsibility for the uh, scores of laws that are administered by the department, uh, including the wage hour laws, Family Medical Leave Act, the OSH Act, um, ERISA, many other laws. Uh, prior to becoming solicitor, uh, Jonathan was uh, uh, deputy solicitor uh, from uh, July 2006. And then prior to that, he spent um, just about a year and a half as acting secretary for OSHA. Um, and uh, he had joined the Labor Department about four years ago as a senior advisor uh, to the solicitor. Uh, before coming over to the Labor Department, he was practicing uh, uh, law in Texas, where he was a litigator doing labor and employment matters and other litigation. Um, he is a uh, graduate of the University of Virginia, as am I, and uh, received his JD from uh, Washington and Lee. So each of our speakers now is going to take 12 minutes or so to talk about the leading issues on, uh, on his agenda and, uh, and on the agenda of his agency. And then we should have ample time following that, first for some uh, discussion among the panel and then for questions from the audience. So with no further ado, Mr. Meisberg. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me here today. I want to acknowledge one of my distinguished predecessors, John Irving, the audience today. Uh, I've now been uh, in the office of uh, general counsel about 18 months, which I think makes me the senior person among the three people up here. Um, and I want to talk to you a little bit this afternoon about some matters that have taken up a bit of my time during the past 18 months. Specifically, I want to talk to you a little bit about NLRA preemption and employee free choice. Federal preemption issues can arise in many contexts, but my focus uh, today is on preemption of state law under the National Labor Relations Act and the so-called proprietary exception to the National Labor Relations Act preemptive powers. Uh, the doctrine of preemption, of course, is based on the supremacy clause of the Constitution and operates to invalidate state law that either frustrates the purpose of national legislation or interferes with federal agencies in discharging their duties or stands as an obstacle to the accomplishment and execution of the full purposes and objectives of Congress. Now, there are two preemption theories that have, uh, the Supreme Court has rooted in the National Labor Relations Act. Uh, the Garmin and the Machinists theory, generally under Garmin preemption, the National Labor Relations Act preempts state and local laws which regulate conduct that is either actually, actually or arguably protected or actually or arguably prohibited by the National Labor Relations Act. Garmin preemption uh, essentially seeks to protect the NLRA's jurisdiction from encroachment uh, by potentially conflicting or supplemental state legislation, which would undermine Congress's intent uh, that the protections and the prohibitions of the National Labor Relations Act be applied exclusively, nationally, and uniformly. Now, machinist preemption recognizes the intention of Congress that in some areas of labor management relations uh, are to remain free from any government regulation. For example, collective bargaining, which is subject to some regulation under the National Labor Relations Act, but very little, and is essentially a process meant to result in voluntary agreements determined by the free play of economic forces. Now, although these preemption theories are well established, in recent years the Supreme Court and lower courts have carved out a third so-called proprietary exception to the NLRA preemptive effect. 
Essentially, the proprietary exception to NLRA preemption holds that state and local governments are immune from National Labor Relations Act preemption when they act as market participants whose actions have neither the purpose nor the effect of regulating labor relations. The proprietary exception received Supreme Court approval in the Boston Harbor case. There, a federal court had ordered the Massachusetts Water Resources Authority to bring the water quality of Boston Harbor up to the statutorily mandated environmental standards. Now, to comply with this order, the authority undertook to construct water treatment facilities, which it would own and be responsible for operating. On the advice of its private construction industry consultant, the authority decided to enter into a project labor agreement requiring the use of union construction contractors on the job. Now, non-union construction industry employers claimed that the authority's action was preempted. Essentially, the argument was that the project labor agreement amounted to state regulation requiring the use of union contractors. And since federal law in the construction industry leaves this choice unregulated, the non-union contractors argued that the authority's imposition of a project labor agreement requiring the use of labor uh, union-related contractors uh, was subject to machinists' preemption. The Supreme Court disagreed, holding that the authority's action was not state regulation of labor relations and was therefore not preempted. First, the court relied upon the authority's ownership of the constructed facilities and its sole responsibility under the court order to bring the harbor environmental standards up to compliance. The authority's action was specifically tailored to one specific job and not intended as a general labor relations regulation. Second, the court recognized that the the construction project labor agreement uh, is something that is legal and uh, common in private uh, in the private sector and permitting the authority uh, uh, authorities conduct actually promotes the legislative policies uh, that animated the passage of AD and 8F exceptions for the construction industry to allow project labor agreements. Indeed, as I said, the project labor agreement had been recommended by the authorities private sector construction industry consultant. Now, under these circumstances, the State Water Resources Authority, the court held, was acting like a business proprietor, not a regulator. And like a business proprietor, the state, like any other market participant, had a right to decide whether or not it wanted its construction work done under a project labor agreement. Since the authority was not regulating, the court held that its action was not preempted. Now, federal courts have been asked to apply the principles enunciated in Boston Harbor in a number of cases. Uh, Thus far, uh, a number of states and localities have uh, enacted legislation which fall into one of two general categories. One category is laws which impose neutrality and card check type agreements on employers who are doing business with the state or the locality. The other type is laws that prohibit contractors from spending funds paid by state or local governments on any activity promoting or discouraging union organization, such that a contractor who is working for the state 
may not spend any of the money it receives on the contract to oppose or promote uh, union organization. Now, time doesn't permit a discussion of all the uh, types in detail statutes involved or all the cases that have been pending, but there is one case that's currently pending on a petition for certiorari in the Supreme Court that I'd like to mention. Uh, and that was a case decided by the Ninth Circuit, uh, Chamber of Commerce versus Lockyer. Uh, the California statute at issue in Lockyer uh, does not permit state funds received by a contractor working for the state to be used in any way to assist, promote, or deter union organizing. Now, a Ninth Circuit panel found, as the board argued in our amicus brief, that the statute is preempted under both Garmin and machinists by pressuring employers to give up their Section 8C free speech rights. However, on rehearing on Bonk, the Ninth Circuit reversed the panel and found no preemption. Now, the en banc court did not question the panel's finding that the state uh, statute was a regulatory enactment because its scope indicates a general state position of neutrality with regard to organizing, not a narrow attempt to achieve a specific procurement goal. So they rejected the um, uh, proffered uh, argument that this uh, was um, uh, a proprietary action by the state. They held it was a regulatory action by the state. Nevertheless, the Ninth Circuit concluded that the law does not conflict with the National Labor Relations Act, even if it is regulatory. First, the court held that machinist preemption doesn't apply because employers are free to use their own funds, separate and apart from funds received under a state contract, to oppose unionization and exercise their 8C uh, free speech rights. And further, machinist preemption applies only to those zones of activity that Congress intended to leave free from all regulation. The court held that since the NLRB does, in fact, regulate union organizing and that employer speech in the context of organizing is also regulated, that this was not a zone free of regulation as required for machinist preemption. Now, second, the court found no Garmin preemption because of a state's control of its purse strings is of at least as great a concern to the state as its power to regulate defamatory speech, violence, trespass, obstruction of access to property, uh, or the intentional infliction of emotional distress, all matters that had been found of sufficient interest to the state to defeat Garmin preemption. So even if the state regulated activity arguably protected or prohibited by the NLRA, Garmin's recognized exception of strong local government interests saved the California statute from preemption. Now, in January 2007, the United States Chamber of Commerce filed a petition for a writ of certiorari with the Supreme Court. Uh, the case is now styled Chamber of Commerce versus Brown. The court has invited the Solicitor General of the United States to present the governor's views on the government's views on whether to grant the petition. Uh, the Solicitor General has in turn requested government agencies, including the board, to, to advise it on this question. And it will be interesting to see how the Solicitor General distills the information he's given in presenting the federal government's position in the Supreme Court. As you can see, this area of the law is uh, very complex. I think it's very interesting. 
the issues presented go to the very foundation of the National Labor Relations Act and our agency's jurisdiction uh, and to the very heart of federalism. How am I doing on time? A couple of minutes. Uh, let me just say, uh, I'm sure you've all seen in the recent news reports on the clamor for uh, free choice, most recently in connection with Congress's consideration of the Employee Free Choice Act. Um, I think it's important to note that the principle of free choice is already a cornerstone of the National Labor Relations Act. And I'm committed to this principle. For example, the National Labor Relations Act guarantees that employees have the right to make a free choice, whether to engage in protected activity or not, the right to make a free choice with respect to union representation without coercion or intimidation by employers or unions, and the right to make a free choice whether to pay full union dues or pay only a fee based on the union's representational services to the local bargaining unit. So I think the principle of employee free choice is one that is embedded in our law and one which uh, I take and I think our board takes seriously. Um, I, there are obviously a lot of other issues we could discuss this morning. Uh, Twelve minutes allows me to talk about something I thought may be of particular interest uh, uh, to uh, the Federalist Society, uh, but I look forward to uh, the dialogue we're going to have uh, after the other presentations. Thank you very much. Thank you. And now we'll hear from Ronald Cooper. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here and an honor to be on this program with my distinguished colleagues from the NLRB and, and the Department of Labor. And I appreciate the opportunity for me to hear what these folks and sister agencies are, are up to and to share with you all uh, what's going on at the EOC. I'm going to begin by telling you a little bit about what the lawyers in the Office of General Counsel have been up to lately. I'm going to then share what's something a little bit better than speculation about what the future may hold for us. And then finally, I'm going to mention, and that's about all the time will permit me to do, a few cases that may um, have an impact on uh, our administration. Um, the General Counsel's Office, as you may know, is the litigation arm of the EEOC. As I'm fond of saying, uh, litigation is all I do. I'm not involved in regulations or guidances or policy issues of any sort unless I can somehow insinuate myself into somebody else's activities. But I don't have any responsibility for that. Also, as you probably know, unlike the NLRB, we don't um, decide anything really at the EEOC. We don't adjudicate anything. If a charge is filed and if we decide that there's reason to believe that the law has been violated, uh, we have to attempt conciliation in most cases, and then if we want, if we decide it's important enough to pursue ourselves, then we go into district court and file uh, a, an original action there. We're a little unique in that regard. Labor Department also has uh, some of these rights, but we're unique in the sense that we represent ourselves most times in the courts. 
we have an active docket of approximately 440 cases that are currently pending in the federal district courts. And those cases, and we look at this on a regular basis, are a fair cross-section of the various categories of discrimination that we are charged with addressing. Uh, one of the things we've been up to since I've been there is to update our litigation uh, performance evaluation, if you will. And we, for the first time, tried to establish some benchmarks in order to compare what we're doing to something that's a meaningful comparator, and we chose private uh, plaintiff's counsel. And we think that what the work we've done shows that we have been reasonably successful both in, in an absolute sense and in a comparative sense. Over the past five fiscal years, we have achieved positive outcomes in 92% of the cases that we filed. Over the same period, we have suffered adverse pretrial dispositions, typically summary judgments. These are adverse summary judgments. At one-third the rate of the private plaintiff's bar. So our adverse rate is one-third of theirs. When we go to trial, and like most everybody, trials are really an unusual uh, event in any uh, litigation program, we prevail in approximately 50% of those trials. And that is a, a significantly better uh, success rate uh, than for the private bar. Our appellate record is particularly impressive. We are successful in defending a favorable judgment in nearly 80% of the appeals that, uh, where we're the bottom side versus only 57% for private plaintiffs. The reversal rate for cases we lost below and, brought and uh, took on appeal was approximately 58%. 58% of the cases we lose, if we appeal, we get reversed. That compares to a reversal rate of 10% uh, for the private bar. Well, that's uh, sort of our, our internal scorecard. But what trends do I expect to see in the future? First, there are things that will continue. I have a fairly high level of confidence of that you will continue to see a large number of race discrimination cases involving African-Americans, always have. Hopefully, it won't always be the case, but it certainly doesn't apparently have an end in sight. Uh, it's being addressed in part by uh, the Commission's recent E-Race initiative that's designed to re-energize our work in this area and to make us more sophisticated in dealing with the more subtle forms of race discrimination. Um, you'll see a large number of retaliation cases. As you probably know, the Supreme Court in the Burlington Northern case, in effect, adopted EEOC's fairly liberal standard for determining what amounts to retaliation. So I expect you'll continue to see uh, a significant number of retaliation cases. Since 2001, just over a third of the cases we bring contain a retaliation claim. It may not be the only claim in the case, but a third of our cases have a retaliation claim. What claims do I believe will, what, what will you see increase? 
age cases. The demographic changes underway guarantee that there will be a greater opportunity for age discrimination claims in the future. And I have to say, if I've been surprised by one thing in my job, it's seeing every day that I pick up a newspaper, virtually, a massive force reduction uh, underway at some major American company. This is a good economy, uh, you know, critics notwithstanding. Uh, if we're seeing force reductions today, uh, I think we have to accept that there are a perpetual, permanent factor of, uh, of, a, of modern American business management. And those things create an extraordinary opportunity for age discrimination claims. ADA claims, Americans with Disability Act claims. I think you'll see them increase. And the reason you'll see them increase is we're trying to increase them. And the reason we're trying to increase them is that they are an underserved uh, component of the groups that we're charged with protecting. Private plaintiffs simply don't bring ADA claims to the extent they, represent, they bring other types of discrimination claims. Why? They're difficult. They're tough cases. They're expensive. Almost every ADA case involves experts, and a lot of plaintiffs, private plaintiffs' lawyers either are or unable or unwilling to front the money that's involved in, in bringing those cases. So we believe we have to do it. We have to do more of it than we're doing now. Um, the other thing I think you'll see more of are cases involving undocumented workers. They are uh, an easily exploited group, and if the titter in the media is right, we're beginning to see a backlash uh, against them uh, that's going to make them even more reluctant, I think, to come forward and, and, and seek the protection that the law provides them. But they are, by definition, a protected class. So I think you'll see more cases involving undocumented workers. Now, one thing you're sure to see, more systemic cases. When we say systemic, we really mean big. We mean our version of class cases, cases involving lots of, uh, of individuals and, and lots of groups. And we've always done cases like this. In fact, just last week we announced settlement of a case against Walgreens that was a nationwide challenge to their assignment and advancement of African-American managers and pharmacists. And that was not... I mean, that was a systemic case, but when I say you're going to see more, that's because of the systemic initiative, a program that we adopted uh, last year. This is really the first full year under that program. And it's meant, quite simply, to increase the number of big-ticket cases that we bring. So I think, in fact, you will see uh, more of those. Uh, let me... Um, tell you a little bit about what's different under the systemic program. First of all, the systemic function has been pushed down, if you will, to the field. We used to have an office in my shop in Washington that did all of that. Uh, we abolished it. Uh, it's now the district office's responsibility to develop their own systemic plans and their own systemic targets, if you will. In Washington, what we're trying to do is give them the technology tools that help them evaluate uh, targets and, and evaluate what are the issues in their district that merit this kind of attention, and also to manage the cases once they've, uh, once they've brought them. Uh, 
The other thing we're doing is trying to institute what we call a national law firm model. Um, maybe a bad choice of a model, but that's ours anyway. Uh, and the idea is that we're going to try to work as if we were one, really, uh, one, one office, not 15. We have 15 district offices. We're going to try to prevent each district from viewing itself as self-contained, and we're going to try to make assignments of people based on their skills and what they can bring to the party and not based on where a charge or a case happens to be pending. And I think with the technology improvements that we're making, that's going to be a lot more feasible than it used to be, notwithstanding our pretty severe budget restrictions. Where do we stand under the systemic program? Every district has a headquarters-approved plan in place. I've reviewed them all myself. Uh, they're all pretty impressive. They've got real targets. Uh, they've got real objectives. And uh, I'm confident they're going to produce things that will get more attention for our enforcement program and ultimately have a bigger impact uh, on the laws that we're responsible for enforcing. Now, what you may see, I expect you will, one of, the, one of the, 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 bean, the beans that get counted right now are cases. Everybody wants to know how many cases we filed this year, and we're about to get into the frenzied season when most of our cases come into headquarters and we try to get our numbers where they ought to be. The, uh, I think you'll see those numbers go down. Maybe not this year, probably not this year, maybe not even next year, but eventually we will be filing fewer cases, and we need to start looking at what we're doing differently. We need to start measuring how many people we're serving through our litigation program, and we're going to start, uh, start trying to do that. Let me just mention a few cases. I'm down to two minutes, and, and it may be that we'll get to talk about them during the, uh, the follow-up. Third Circuit recently, last month, affirmed uh, the district court's decision in AARP versus EEOC, which was a challenge to our regulation permitting employers to coordinate uh, health care benefits with Medicare and other state uh, health programs that now is, has been upheld. Justice represents us in, those, in that case, so I, I can't take personal credit for it, but we are uh, awaiting Thursday when the petition for rehearing would be, would be due. It wouldn't surprise me to see one. Gene uh, uh, already mentioned Ledbetter, and we can talk some more about that maybe uh, amongst ourselves. Uh, but a very, very interesting case, and there is, in fact, a legislative, quote, fix uh, up on the Hill uh, that all of us are, are, are looking at. The Supreme Court has granted cert in two cases that involve us uh, that we are uh, certainly watching. Federal Express versus Holowicki. The issue there is whether one of our intake questionnaires can satisfy the charge filing requirement uh, of Title VII, the Age Act, or, or the ADA. Uh, we had not treated this particular questionnaire as a charge. We didn't docket it. We didn't uh, uh, notify the, the respondent that it, the charge had been filed. But we have taken the position, uh, and we weren't involved in that case at all. Uh, we've taken the position in other cases, though, that a, char that a questionnaire can be a charge if it's got the right contents and if the person who submitted it intended it to be treated as a charge. Sprint versus Mendelssohn, 
is, a, is a, a, an evidentiary case. Uh, whether or not uh, anecdotal evidence of discrimination against individuals who are non-parties is admissible and when in an ADEA RIF case. Uh, let's see. We don't know. I think, as, as Ron uh, Meisberg said, uh, ultimately what position, if any, the government will take on, any, on either of these cases. We will make recommendations uh, in all probability to the Solicitor General, but it's ultimately going to be its call. I think Gene also mentioned the school cases. We'll be interested to see uh, where those are going. I, I think you know, Kennedy's sort of the man in the middle, and his opinion, which was essential to the majority, uh, the, the five-justice uh, majority, seems to recognize that in some in, in instances diversity is a legitimate uh, state objective. Uh, certainly that echoes the position that EEOC has taken down, down the line that uh, we, you can have voluntary diversity efforts, uh, not quotas, but things that are designed to expand the opportunity for, for everybody. I think that's probably a good place for me to stop. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking some more when uh, the appropriate moment comes. Thank you very much. Thank you and good afternoon. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity and the invitation to be with my esteemed colleagues from the NLRB and the EEOC and appreciate the opportunity to come before you at the Federal Society to talk about the important work we're doing at the Department of Labor and the Solicitor's Office. And as Gene indicated in his opening remarks, the Solicitor's Office actually has a wide range of jurisdiction covering a number of program areas, including OSHA, MSHA, Wage and Hour, EBSA, the pension area, as well as the Office of Labor Management Standards, which regulates union transparency and internal union elections, which I'm going to be talking about uh, in more detail uh, today. The other thing that you may not know about the solicitor's office is that we are one of the largest law enforcement agencies in the federal government, one of the largest law department in the federal government, and we have independent litigating authority over a number of the uh, statutes uh, that I'm going to be talking about. Now, having attended a number of Federal Society uh, meetings, I was a member when I was in Dallas in private practice, and I am here in Washington. I do think this organization, your organization, provides a critical balance of viewpoints uh, in the legal community and in the courts. And in keeping with those fundamental principles that we subscribe to, this administration has been working to implement a new labor and employment policy uh, suited for the 21st century. Uh, in a wide range of areas. We've been focusing since the Secretary, since Secretary Chow came in in 2001 in increasing the transparency of the Department's regulations and procedures, uh, updating regulations and rules that in some cases are more suited for an economy uh, in the 19th century or early 20th century and symbolized by an anvil, a plow, a mill wheel, and a steamship, which are all part of the Department of Labor's seal uh, as it currently stands. My comments today will focus on three areas. First, I'm going to be talking about the important work that the department's doing in making financial disclosure um, for union and union members so they understand what the union organizations that they are a member of and where their money is going. Secondly, I'm going to talk 
and give a brief overview of three recent U.S. Supreme Court decisions that either we participated in or that involve programs uh, that, uh, that we administer in the department. And third, time permitting, I may be saying a few words, or we can cover this in the questions, uh, about some other re recent areas and challenges we're facing, including oversight, uh, the law, the whistleblower statutes that we administer, as well as a number of attempts uh, on the Hill to, to change the whistleblower requirements, and also talk about, say a word about the department's uh, recent report and activities in the Family Medical Leave Act. First of all, uh, let's talk about union disclosure and the work uh, of our Office of Labor Management Standards. It's really one of the lesser known functions, but in my judgment, one of the most important functions of our department is to oversee union finances, prevent union corruption, and regulating internal union elections. And this office has been doing so and has had that responsibility since the Labor Management um, Reporting and Disclosure Act in 1959. And that law was enacted by Congress primarily to ensure basic standards of union democracy and fiscal responsibility and disclosure for labor organizations representing employees in private industry. And subsequent changes by Congress have, have enacted comparable requirements to federal, uh, to federal uh, employee unions. This agency is responsible for protecting union members from corruption by collecting meaningful financial information and investigating wrongdoing. And many of you, most of you in the room are familiar with Sarbanes-Oxley legislation, which has placed additional reporting requirements and other obligations on America's corporations. Um, but what has not been done in the past 40 years until this administration came in was updating the main form that the large unions in particular, those with annual receipts over $250,000, must file for their own annual financial disclosures. This is the LM2 uh, form. And we started in this administration updating that form in 2002 and finished the rulemaking in 2003. And, and I think it's important to understand why we did this. Prior to the update, and I'll talk about some of the information that we've obtained through the, old, through the new form in a minute, but under the old, un, under the old mechanism, the information uh, reflected in the report, information about large sum expenditures with categories that were not even very descriptive. They provided union members with little or no useful information. For example, the old form allowed a large union to report $8 million dispersed for civic organizations, $4 million for sundry expenses, $68 million for grants to join projects with state and local affiliates without any more information or specific information to the members. We've adopted the new form, uh, as I mentioned, in 2003. We've also, and this just recently went into a final rule just a few weeks ago, the form LM30, which is an annual form filed by union officers and employees to disclose conflicts of interest between certain of their financial interests and their duty to the union and their members. This administration has provided extensive compliance assistance on these forms, uh, um, as well as the forms required by employers who may have uh, who may make payments to uh, union officials or unions. And that's the form uh, LM10. As we've continued in this reform effort, this effort to promote transparency, we faced a legal challenge uh, in this effort on a number of fronts. We were sued uh, over the LM2 that was upheld by uh, D.C. Federal, um, the initial district court and the appeals court, uh, although they vacated a, proportion, a portion of the LM2 relating to the T1, the Form T1, which, which deals with the disclosure of trusts that are created or established by a union or unions um, uh, dealing with members of where the union appoints a member of the board or whether there's a relationship with a trust 
uh, and a union. That separate, that separate provision, the T1 um, rule, was vacated initially. We had to go back and issue a revised form T1 rule, narrower in the scope as we initially proposed, um, and a number of other requirements. We published that in September of 06, and it took effect in January of this year. It was challenged, uh, and you may have seen in the reports yesterday, I was hoping to talk to you about some of the legal issues uh, in the oral argument that took place about a month ago, but we ended up, uh, the D.C. District Court uh, ruled, granted, them, granted a summary judgment by the AFL-CIO, ruled against us, and vacated the T1 reporting requirement. We got the decision about noon yesterday. We are in the process of evaluating um, our next steps and um, what action we, uh, we may take. Um, as part of the department's overall effort in reform effort to promote transparency uh, in the LM2, the LM30, and the other areas I mentioned, we've also been looking um, at the, um, re the interpretation of the provisions in the LMRDA regarding labor organizations and covered organizations. And in particular, there are a number of labor organizations covered by the statute's definition, um, but we concluded that those provisions include an intermediate labor organization that itself may not represent private uh, sector employees but are subordinate to a national organization or, or an international organization that represents uh, private sector employees. Uh, a, a number of these newly covered intermediate bodies affiliated with the National Teachers Union challenged our interpretation in court, uh, and, and we, in the initial round of the litigation, the D.C. The D.C. Circuit held that the definitional provisions were ambiguous and that our interpretation was permissible, that those intermediate bodies were covered, but we had not adequately explained the rationale. We went back and issued a Federal Register notice in January explaining a reasoned analysis of our interpretation. That in, its, in and of itself has been challenged, and we have been briefing. We briefed, filed summary judgment motions, and we are awaiting an oral argument and an ultimate decision. But the important question for all of these activities, why is what we are doing important? What is the importance of OMS's mission, and why is this reform uh, effort important? I, I, I think the, um, the message here is this work is important because the rank-and-file members, union members, need to know how their organizations are spending money and what their leadership is doing on their behalf. And a related question is, is there a disconnect between rank-and-file union members um, and their leadership. And I'll let you be the judge of that. Let me just give you some additional uh, information from what we've gathered uh, from the LM2 forms after we made the change in 2000, 2003. For example, the AFL reported that it had 9.8 million members publicly, but its LM2 filing reveals that about a million of those individuals that are counted as members do not pay any dues and are not represented by the, uh, by the organization. The Iron Workers Union, which is an affiliate of the AFL-CIO, spent 52000 of their money on a Cadillac as a retirement gift. We're trying to figure out what, the, what, a, what a local union in Hartford, Connecticut, got in, got in exchange for $5,000 it cut to a doodad supplier, whatever that is. The NEA dispersed an average um, bonus or salary of 140000 to its officers and, employee, and employees in the leadership of the organization Yet the school teachers they're representing earned an average of $47,000. And I can go on and on with a number of these examples. One other interesting point to, uh, to mention, however, is the revised LM2 form disclosed exactly how much it cost the AFL to comply with the new requirements. 
during the LM2 rule revision process, the union claimed it would cost them over $1.2 million to comply with the revisions. But when they submitted their revised LM2 forms in 2005, it showed they only spent $54,000, a 96% difference between their estimate and what they actually spent. Um, another important um, point to mention on our Office of Labor Management Relations is, there, is, the, um, is the funding issue. In tough budget difficulties, which the department has been operating under in the last few years, we have been working across the department to do more with less, to be more efficient with the resources we have that we are the stewards of. And the Department of Labor Management Standards has achieved, in my judgment, impressive results uh, in recent years. We've been rebuilding the agency, which the budget had been cut, cut severely in the 1990s. And although we're below staffing levels of 20 years ago, we have, we have, we have upped our uh, hired staff investigators. We've referred cases to U.S. attorneys, resulting in over 775 convictions and recovered over $70 million in restitution for union members. There is talk right now on the Hill of cutting the budget for the agency, uh, but again, I think, this, um, I, I think the importance and the success of Office of Labor Management Standards and their mission uh, speaks for itself in terms of their accomplishments. Okay, thanks. I, uh, I will not, Ron, Ron has already covered the car check um, area. We've been very involved in that in the department, um, and we've also been participating with the Solicitor General in the uh, Brown versus Locklear case that Ron Meisberg uh, mentioned. Let me just address a couple of recent Supreme Court opinions and then we can cover more of these in the question and answer. The Davenport versus Washington Education Association, which came out about a month ago, um, this is an important decision that resolved whether the First Amendment rights for a state to require public sector unions to obtain affirmative consent from a non-member before the union can spend non-member agency dues for election-related purposes. The state of Washington had actually issued a requirement, published a statutory requirement, requiring that consent. The Washington Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court, construed um, that burden as burdening and um, infringing on the union's First Amendment rights, and ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court in a 9-0 decision uh, it, um, concluded that the Washington law that required prior consent uh, did, not violate, did not violate the First Amendment. Let me move to the sec second topic very briefly and just to touch on a couple of cases of importance to the department. One, the Long Island Care uh, versus Coke case, which was a 9-0 a signif a decision, significant victory, uh, for the department that upheld the department's third-party third employer regulation addressing companionship services exemption uh, from the Fair Labor Standards Act, that that was valid and binding. This is a very important opinion for agency deference and for the department's deference in issuing um, uh, interpretive regulations and interpretive memoranda. And we can talk more about it in the Q&A if, if you have interest. Another important decision, the Beck versus Pace International Union, it's an ERISA case. Uh, the Supreme Court concluded that the, the employer that sponsors and administers a single employer-defined benefit pension plan has no fiduciary duty to consider a merger with a multi-employer plan, which is the allegation and the, um, uh, filed by the Pace Union in connection to that. We can talk more about, more about that in the Q&A. Uh, and lastly, the Hine versus Freedom from Religion Foundation case. I think, again, it's a very important decision where uh, the Supreme Court held that, that conferences um, – involving the faith-based community initiatives, which our department and a number of federal departments uh, have, um, do not violate um, the Establishment Clause in the First Amendment, and, and that federal, in particular, the federal taxpayer plaintiffs solely 
on the basis of their standing as a as a taxpayer do not have a do not have a claim. Again, it was a significant victory uh, for us, and I'll save reserve the rest. If you have any questions about oversight or the other topics, we can cover them in the question and answer. Thank you. I had a couple questions that occurred to me in the course of uh, your uh, your comments. Um, one thing I was interested in hearing uh, both from Mr. Meisberg and also Mr. Snare just a little bit more on was the Employee Free Choice Act and uh, particularly uh, what the debate was there. I know there were uh, two uh, provisions. We hear a lot about the card check provision. There was another provision which said that if a contract wasn't uh, reached in a certain period of time, then there would be um, binding arbitration, which would determine the contract terms. But I'm particularly interested in learning just a little bit more what the debate was about as to um, card check pros and cons of, uh, of, of, of that particular provision. And, and, and I guess relatedly, whether this is something we expect to see back in the next Congress. Um, the, the Employee Free Choice Act uh, had um, a few major provisions. And I, number one, uh, it would have required our agency to certify unions on the basis of card checks. Right now, uh, the NLRB will only certify a union as a representative of the employees uh, if uh, they are um, uh, elected, the union is elected in a secret ballot election. Uh, card checks uh, is a, a permissible way uh, to recognize, but the NLRB um, doesn't certify them. They don't get a certification year. Uh, but the principal, obviously, difference in recognition by card check and recognition by secret ballot is uh, uh, the fact that a secret ballot election, the choice is entirely free. No one knows how you voted. And uh, in a card check, uh, the, car, the, the choice of the employee is known uh, both to the employer and the union and to the fellow employees. So it's, uh, uh, that's one of the major differences. The other major difference is uh, in a NLRB secret ballot election, uh, everyone is entitled to vote uh, in a, a card check. Uh, uh, a union may stop after it gets 51 of the cards uh, out of the 51 percent of the cards uh, uh, in an effort to uh, gain recognition without even asking anyone else. So it's uh, clearly uh, uh, be a very a big change in the way we do business. Uh, secondly, it would require unions uh, uh, when they, it would require employers uh, to bargain uh, on a, a compressed basis uh, with the union for a first contract, and if a, an agreement was not reached, I think it was within 90 days, is what the law requires, uh, then there would be uh, uh, a provision in which either of which the union could request mandatory arbitration. And, of course, we've never had that before under federal labor law, basically interest arbitration. The law doesn't define exactly uh, what the, the parameters of the arbitrator's authority would be in terms of it would be a best a last best offer arbitration or would the arbitrator actually pick and choose the terms. But also provide for civil penalties for uh, certain violations of our law, up to $20,000 per violation uh, during union organizing campaigns. Of course, now we don't have civil penalties uh, involved in violations of our law. And it would also require the, um, uh, in uh, these same kinds of instances, the general counsel would have the authority without going to the board uh, would be required to go for a mandatory 10L injunction uh, against violations that occur during uh, first contract bargaining or um, 
during the organizing campaign. So it would significantly increase the board's involvement in these matters. The bill that was introduced in the House passed the House. It got to the Senate. It was a motion for closure was defeated with 51 votes being cast against closure, in favor of closure, not sufficient to cut off debate. The Senate bill, which is an identical bill, but it's pending in the Senate Health Committee, hasn't been reported out of that committee. And I'm not an expert on how the Senate works and how legislation could be brought up. But I guess it's conceivable that as a separate bill, it could be brought up. I suspect the likelihood of that is very slim for this year. But I think like a lot of legislative enactments we've seen over the year, the fact that this had been introduced in a number of previous Congresses, it had never been considered or reported out of a committee. I suspect that the proponents of this legislation are in it for the long haul and that we'll see it come up again in the next Congress. The only thing to add to what Ron said is sort of the history of this. And I think it's interesting. The card check procedure, as Ron indicated, would be a dramatic change from the current mechanism of requiring secret ballots. But card check was actually permitted in the early history of organized labor in the 1930 time period after the initial, I guess it was the Wagner, whatever the name of the act that started organized labor, collective bargaining rights in the early 1930s, through the Taft-Hartley legislation in 1947. And if you go back and look at the legislative history of the Taft-Hartley Act, this is one of the major issues that they were concerned about, about the workers being intimidated, deprived of their dignity. I mean, there's a whole lot of quotes, intimidation by union bosses to force them to come to their home and sign up for card check. And so the sanctity of the free ballot protected that. And I think if you go back and look at sort of the legislative history of the Taft-Hartley Act, and there's been some reported decisions where the card check mechanism has been discussed in the ensuing years. Most courts basically claim it's an unreliable method of ascertaining the true will of the particular employment site. So it's something that we were very involved in in the department in formulating the administration policy on it. It's something, as Ron indicated, we'll be watching closely. It may be coming around again in two years. A question on the sort of equal employment opportunity side of the House. I think a couple of you referred to the Supreme Court's decisions in the school cases, Seattle and Louisville, which concerned school diversity programs. Since the Michigan cases, we've seen much more attention also on corporate diversity programs and some corporations uncertain what they can and can't do in that area. And so I'm curious, principally for Ron Cooper, but I guess also for Jonathan, given the Labor Department's OFCCP responsibilities, whether you're seeing an uptick in cases that you're bringing involving potential reverse discrimination or whether there's been guidance issued in connection with those programs about what employers can and can't be doing in that area. Well, let me start with my huge disclaimer. As I said, I don't do policy, so I'm not sure 
I, I would expect we have some guidance existing on uh, on permissible diversity, as I, as I outlined it. I think we take the the view that uh, we've taken the view in litigation that you can have uh, positive outreach efforts and the like uh, without running a fair a foul of reverse discrimination. I don't believe there's been any uptick uh, in reverse discrimination. Uh, cases certainly I'm not aware of any since I've been in this job in the last year I'm not aware of having brought one at least the commission having brought one and I have really haven't looked to see if there's been in the private uh, arena any any increase I, I suspect we will motivated by this case I suspect the people that, that do tend to uh, guidance production uh, down the street will will be looking at uh, it's saying something about it. I would, I would imagine that we will, but I don't know for sure. And Gene, you know, to add, we, I haven't really noticed any any uptick in those type of cases. We have done sort of as our general compliance assistance program to federal contractors. I think we've gotten sort of this question of permissible diversity at, at, at times, which we've you know provided whatever necessary guidance based on um, based on the particular facts. I know we've been reviewing those opinions to see what impact they would have on our programs, and I don't know if we've really determined. I don't, think they, I don't think they necessarily will. The main focus of our Office of Contract Compliance that I want to mention, and Ron also talked about that in terms of his focus at EEOC, is really our effort on systemic compensation, focusing on large cases where there are systemic compensation problems based on empirical statistical evidence. And that's been sort of the focus. We put out some compensation guidelines in the safe harbor in early 2006, uh, which have tried to establish more empirical parameters of what we do in the Office of Contract Compliance, but that's been sort of that's been sort of our emphasis at this point. Um, case I wanted to ask about, and then I'll turn it over for uh, others' questions. But um, uh, Ron uh, Cooper, <laughs> you referred to the Sprint Mendelson case, which I think is a, you know a potentially very important case in the Supreme Court. hasn't gotten all that much attention, but you know the facts in a nutshell are that the um, a plaintiff was let go in a, a RIF. There were a number of RIFs being conducted in different departments at about the same time, but not necessarily simultaneously. And she didn't have a pattern or practice case or a statistical discrimination case, uh, but she wanted to uh, introduce the testimony of five coworkers from other departments who would say, yeah, I was let go because of my age, too. And by the way, I heard this manager down the hall who's not your manager um, but he's part of management, say something about age that I found very offensive. And it was a testimony of that nature that was sought to be admitted. The trial judge barred it, and I believe it was the Eighth Circuit reversed and said that that was um, an abuse of discretion um, and that not only may that come in, it had to be permitted, um, which surprised me because most of the time I've looked at it, the rule has been not only um, is it okay not to have it come in, in fact, it must not come in. So there seems to be a real range of opinion on that particular issue and um, I suspect it's too soon to know what position um, the Solicitor General's office might take in that case if it files. Um, but um, I don't know, uh, Ron, if it's, you've looked into what the EEOC historically has said on that issue, where there are three potential positions, um, must come in, must not, or may. Discretion. Right. Well, let me uh, take issue with a couple of facts. Uh, I, think it, I think it's the Tenth Circuit. And what happened really right. uh, was the district court relying on what it understood to be a Tenth Circuit policy, said as a matter of law, I can't admit it. I have no discretion to let it in. 
the Tenth Circuit said you, uh, that's, that's about a discipline. That's in, in the discipline context, we do have a must-be-the-same-supervisor uh, policy, but you don't extend that to a RIF. So you, you erred in doing that, and by the way, you got it fundamentally wrong. It should have come in. So you're right. There are three possibilities for sure. Either the old Tenth Circuit uh, policy is understood by the by the district court was correct. Uh, uh, it's uh, at the other extreme. It almost always has to come in, or probably the more likely outcome is that there's some measure of discretion, uh, 401 or 403, to let the uh, let the district court decide if uh, if it's relevant and if even if it's relevant, would it be would the prejudicial effect of it outweigh the way the, the probative uh, value. So I, and, and yes, I don't know. I, I, I know, uh, I don't even think I'm supposed to say that, but we have been in discussions with, oh, the, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> with the Solicitor General. So, so I, I know, I know it's being examined, but how it's going to come out, I really have no idea. Thanks. Well, let me turn it over for questions. And um, I, I believe we have a microphone that can be circulated. And let me also um, comment. I don't usually play this game, but I did want to note that we had a number of uh, representatives um, uh, from the administration here, including um, Pat Pizzella, Assistant Secretary of the Labor Department, and Wayne Byer from the Administrative Review Board of the Labor Department. I think I see Bob Itell from Education Department. Um, and I think I also saw my former colleague, Cheryl Stanton, uh, who I think is now at White House Counsel's Office in the room. But um, so, uh, and many other terrific and fabulous people. Um, but I, I did want to note that we really had a very nice uh, uh, group uh, come today. So um, with that, uh, questions? And, and there's a hand being waved in the back, and I don't know why. Um. <laughs> Rodney Livingston, SPNN.net Television Network here in Washington, D.C. And uh, this is more of a vision, not a policy question. Uh, the people that you work with or your adversaries you work against um, have the intellectual property to, and the understanding and the implications of their conduct and behavior. So the question is, why is it that education hasn't rendered the EEOC, the NLRB, and the Department of Labor obsolete in the 21st century? Well, I think we all favor a smaller government. Um, <laughs> hope springs eternal. I don't know whether elimination of your agency is something currently being deliberated that you wouldn't be able to tell us about. But uh, um, I, I, The cynics would say it's the other education, the law schools, that prevent that from happening. But I, <laughs> uh, I don't know. There would probably be some who would argue that our agency is obsolete. Uh, <laughs> Uh, certainly our critics do, and possibly some of our uh, not so vociferous critics. I don't know that, uh, you know, we have an agency that doesn't uh, have as its goal sort of eliminating something that Congress has declared to be wrong, like discrimination. Uh, we have an agency which has as its goal enforcing a right to make a choice. So education on either side of that issue might cause different people to make different choices. Our goal is to make sure that they're entitled uh, to make the free choices that the Act allows and to enforce that uh, choice. Other questions? Work Legal Defense Foundation. This question is directed against to, uh, to Mr. Mike and Mr. Snare. You both 
mentioned that your agency was involved with the Solicitor General on the Chamber of Commerce uh, versus Lockyer, now Chamber of Commerce versus Brown case, preemption case. Uh, can you enlighten us as to what your agency is going to recommend or has recommended to the solicitor with regard to the government's position in that case? Ray, I think uh, the Solicitor General speaks for the United States government. And, uh, it's, and I, I don't want to dodge your question, but I don't think it would be proper for me to uh, announce here what our agency has advised the Solicitor General to do. We will support, obviously, the position taken by the Solicitor General. Um, our position in the cases where we filed an amicus brief is a public record. Uh, we have defended the jurisdiction of our agency. Uh, but uh, the specific issues involved in this case, the specific questions, I think uh, I would uh, want to comment on uh, our agency's uh, deliberations with the SG. Let me just echo what Ron indicated. We're, we're participating in the SG and the review process. It's a very important case, and I've been uh, directly involved as well as a number of other senior people in our front office. But we, again, we were in the process of working with the SG on formulating the government's position, and I, I really don't think we can go into it anymore at this, at this time until we finish that process. Uh, I don't know when. I know there are ongoing deliberations. There will be uh, meetings uh, held uh, over the uh, next period of weeks, but I don't know what the Solicitor General's schedule is. Yeah, I don't know if there was a deadline issued when they solicited I, the views of the government. I don't I'm, think I'm not sure generally there's not. So I don't think there is – I don't believe there is a deadline. It's obviously an important issue both in the labor area but in other areas too because it's a, uh, an issue I think we'll see more and more in different forms um, as labor unions uh, uh, are increasingly frustrated uh, with their ability to move the agenda through the United States Congress and look to state legislatures instead. And so a variant of this uh, that we've seen is some uh, state and local laws in the um, employee health care area where I think there certainly are preemption concerns as well, and um, similar issues are arising. Um, other questions? This question is directed to Mr. Cooper. Is track kept of success uh, by category within the discrimination uh, arena? In other words, do we know whether or not, for instance, by actual disposition as opposed to settlement, are age discrimination cases more likely in this era to succeed in race discrimination cases and so on. I mean, I know, for instance, from clerking, the clerks would speak anecdotally of, gosh, you know, it sure would be nice to see a successful race discrimination claim just once. Or you would find that sex discrimination cases or disability discrimination cases were more likely to make it past summary judgment into trial and so on. Is that a kept of the, those sorts of uh, dispositions? Uh, let me start by saying I've been quite surprised since I've been at the EEOC at how good the data is and how, you know, it can be uh, used. I was, it really was quite surprised, I think, and I think that's a fairly recent, recent change. I would suspect uh, it could be sorted that way. We've never, I've never tried to, to look at success rates by category. Um, I, I can, what I have looked at is filing rates by category because I want to be sure that we are representing all the people that we're supposed to be representing, that we're, we're acting in a proportionate way to what's available to us. Uh, you know, it, basically what happens is that there's a conciliation. It fails. 
recommendation or it's forwarded to the lawyers to decide whether to sue. It's that pool that we look at to see if we are doing the job we should be doing of representing everybody. Haven't looked at success rates. Let me say, though, you, you said by litigation and not by settlement. Ninety-something percent of our cases are settled. Uh, you know, litigate, litigating all the way to an outcome is extraordinarily rare. And, uh, you know, uh, so I don't know, I don't know that that would be a meaningful way to to slice up the information, but I, but we, yeah, right. Well, I know we can, we can sort them by disposition because I gave you some summary judgment data in my, in my remarks. Uh, but whether we can match those up with the particular categories, I think we can, uh, but I haven't tried to do that. Hi. Uh, Follow-up question. Uh, Gene, you had mentioned about the Ledbetter case decided, which, of course, deals with the continuing violation uh, and I certainly know uh, Ron Cooper and John Snare, your respective agencies, that's been historically an important part of the systemic or the, the big cases you bring. question is, have either of the agencies uh, reacted and issued any guidance on that decision and or there, of course, are legislative reversal bills pending? I don't know if a uh, SAP, a statement of administrative position, has issued or can you follow up a little bit with us on, on Ledbetter and where you see that going? Well, we have certainly talked about Ledbetter internally, uh, and, uh, but in, in terms of having anything external that's uh, available for public dissemination, we haven't. Uh, and, we, and we've looked at, again, this is an area where I don't have any direct line responsibility, but often if legislation is pending and the agency has been asked to comment, I'll get at least a chance to put my two cents uh, worth in on it, and I've looked at uh, the bill and put my two cents in on it, but I don't know where it's gone, uh, where it's gone from there. I think. <laughs> <laughs> nice try. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, well, I think you know there, there, there are two there are two issues. I, it seems to me if you look at the the Ledbetter decision, the what it seemed to me to do was to take uh, Baysmore, is it? The, uh, the the earlier case, and say, look, that only matters. Uh, that only have, extends the statute if the discrimination is embedded in the compensation system itself. If it isn't, if it's merely reflected in the compensation system, then it doesn't extend the limitations period. Uh, I mean, that's how I understand the decision. I think understand that the legislation is going quite a bit further than that, and I'm not even quite sure that the proponents of the legislation know how far it will go, because there's some terms in there that aren't defined that uh, seem to have great significance in the, in the structure of the statute, but uh, you don't have a clue what they mean. Those are my two observations. And, David, just to follow up, I mean, I, I don't think I can add too much here. We have been, the department and the solicitor's office and OFCCP have been very involved in sort of interagency discussions in this response to this legislation. We, I can't really go into 
sort of our, our, our position, but we have been involved and we've been reviewing that carefully on the decision itself. The only thing to add is we, in our office, as well as working with OFCCP, have been looking at it and analyzing as to what the impact. We put out no public that I'm aware of, although David Frank, the head of the office, is sitting back there. He can maybe add to it, but the, uh, the deputy head of the office. But we have been working and trying to determine whether there's any impact on our programs. That's all. We have time for one or two more questions. This is a question for Mr. Miesberg. I wonder um, if you can comment on the trend toward communication and information sharing with unions outside the U.S. and how that might impact the activities of the NLRB or what decisions are taken. Well, for some years now, uh, I think uh, unions have been trying to build bridges with their um, uh, correspondence in other countries. I know that uh, when I was in private practice, we had some cases for some foreign direct investors in the United States in which uh, U.S.-based unions had uh, filed uh, requests uh, with the OECD and the ILO um, in which Basically, what didn't have a, any sort of uh, force of law, but it was used as political pressure against the, uh, well, actually, for some of the European-based uh, companies that did have the force of law, could have. So that these, this interest in using supranational uh, uh, institutions has been around for a while. I think what we're seeing now is kind of a, 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 an outgrowth of that and actually seeing the unions themselves becoming supranational institutions. Uh, in a way, following the, uh, uh, the growth of uh, corporations, which, uh, you know, we used to think of the uh, uh, United States. I think back to sort of the prosaic debate we had back in the 70s about did you buy an American car or not. Well, I almost defy you now to figure out which car on the road is, uh, uh, is an American car. The parts come from everywhere. So I think that is a natural outgrowth of their earlier use of these institutions and sort of following the money, if you will. Last question. We have a question way in the back there. Hi, I'm Mark Sheff from uh, Workforce Management Magazine. I have a, a, a question for Mr. Cooper. Uh, the, the fact that, uh, as you said, litigating uh, to an outcome is extremely rare at the EEOC. I'm, I'm wondering about the speed with which the, the Walgreens uh, suit sort of uh, arose and was disposed of. The E-Race initiative was announced on February 28th. This lawsuit was filed and has been resolved by July 12th. Is that unusually fast? And what does that say about the momentum for E-Race? Well, I think, I think it is unusually fast. Uh, the, uh, the case had been around uh, for a fair while uh, already, but it did... It do, did move uh, to, to settlement quite fast. I don't, I don't think there's any way really uh, to uh, hook it up with the E-Race initiative uh, per se. I mean, it, the E-Race, neither the systemic initiative nor the E-Race initiative led to that case. Uh, but it's hard, it's hard to say what, you know, what motivates parties to want to settle. Okay, well, thank you, and thanks again to the panel for making the time to come here and talk to us today. Thanks very much. It was really very informative.